0: The one thing you realize around discrimination of any kind is, first and foremost, the almost systematic dehumanization of people and then the invalidation of experience. And I think those are the two things that I see both in Australia and in South Africa. The one that you know, I look at before I step into any context or into any country is the idea of where did the dehumanization stem from? What does that look like and how is that manifesting in today's reality? And that is usually the most interesting part because it is usually not written accurately in history. And so I used to think this was a South African problem, whereby we don't narrate our history correctly and accurately. And then I realized that it feeds into the second thing, which is the invalidation of experience. If there's no history to support your experience, did it really happen?
1: That was humanitarian, author, and an ambassador for post-conflict reconciliation, Candice Mama, on episode 15 of the Bobby Jagdev podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. My guest today, Candice Mama, certainly knows how to make an entrance. She was featured in Vogue magazine and recognized by the African Union as one of the most inspiring women of our present time. And she's also the former face of MAC Cosmetics, South Africa. Now, Candice's personal story of forgiveness and transformation has become a beacon in supporting post-conflict societies, her story was even featured as one of the 75 stories to celebrate the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. So it was truly an honour to have been in conversation with somebody as claimed as as Candice. Now, before I go into framing today's conversation, I have my usual request: if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast with. Whichever merchant distributes this podcast to your device, that would be appreciated. And hit me up on my mailing list. There's a link in the show notes. And by subscribing to the mailing list, you will receive notifications of new podcast episodes once they are released. This conversation comes with a brief health warning. It contains some explicit language and themes of a nature that some individuals may find distressing to listen to. Now, reconciliation is a theme that resonates with many black and white South Africans. Candice's association with the emotional impact of apartheid has a proximity to a significant and traumatic life event. Candice's father, Glenak Masilo Mama, was a political activist and a revolutionary who was assassinated by the infamous Eugene Dukok. Now, Eugene was the commander of a paramilitary hit squad in South Africa. He orchestrated and executed the systematic termination of political activists with a brutal and undignified virulence. Now, for Candice, the aftermath of not only losing her father, but coming to terms with how her father was murdered, directed her into a spiraling depressive cycle the mental loops constructed by resentment, anger and loss had a consequential mental and physical impact on on Candice. One that she eventually overcame by sharing her story. Now, this is a conversation about the invalidation of experience and provides a window into the life of South Africa's post-apartheid generation. It also highlights the impact on an individual whose paternal bond was mercilessly disrupted. When forces of political oppression have inaccurately narrated a history, this can induce a form of racial and social gaslighting. School texts, even today in South Africa, can represent an alternate history. One that didn't necessarily happen in the way it can be communicated to to students. Now, throughout this conversation, Candice reminds us that the further you're removed from an incident, the more diluted it becomes. That the system of apartheid wasn't designed for black people to win. It was designed for them to fail. However, it is now both black and white South Africans that are the victims of the socioeconomic impact of oppression and indoctrination. Vengeance as an output of war destroys the inner sanctum of our soul. When we embrace the ability to forgive those for the pain and trauma they have inflicted, we unlock ourselves from what can be a devastating mental incarceration. Now, in 2019, Candice published her version of her story in a book titled Forgiveness Redefined, an immersive memoir of her childhood experiences that culminates at the moment she met and hugged her father's assassin. Now, with a hug being the most visceral of human connections, such an embrace is a truly awe-inspiring symbol of forgiveness. And with that, Candice has truly redefined a modality of forgiveness. Candice chose the narrative under which she documented her history and reminds us that we all encompass the ability to change our story at any given moment in time. It's such a joy to welcome a new friend to the podcast, one whose energy for life, love and appreciation embodies a gravitating force, one that you will find difficult to break away from. So it is truly an honor, pleasure and a privilege to invite you to join my conversation with Candice Mama. Okay, Candice, yeah. we're we're rolling. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast, Candice.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Bobby. I'm excited.
1: You know, I have to say that I have been excited about this conversation. Um, and But at the same time, I do have this flutter of nerves as well. Because, you know, uh, I mean, in front of me now, I'm, I'm just in awe of your presence. I mean, your accolades... And your background—I mean, just listing a few things off—you know—is enough to intimidate the best of people. You know, one of your, your, your stories—if if you just kind of look at a the kind of brief overview—you, you know, one of your your story was one of the the seventy-five as part of the UN seventy-fifth anniversary. Uh, voted one of the top twenty African women by the African Union, you went viral on the BBC year and that's how we connected um face of Mac cosmetics in south africa vogue magazine top 30 inspiring women i mean alongside michelle obama when i roll off those accolades <laughs> that is enough to put the nerves in the best of people
0: <laughs> oh no but thank
1: you <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna do my best to kind of you know uh guide my way through this conversation but you know what, it, it is so awesome having you on the podcast i really appreciate your time
0: Oh no! I'm so happy to be speaking to you, and yeah, I mean, I'm excited for this conversation. I love your energy, so I think it's going to be fun.
1: Wonderful. Um, I heard your story initially, and how we kind of connected was was on the BBC. And um, there's so many areas to unpack as part of today's conversation. And it's funny because I do a lot of research, Candice, on on my guests. And some guests are easier to research than others. Some have a ton of information, you know, books, knowledge on the internet. And I have to say, I I devoured your book. Um, I literally, I sat there in one sitting and I managed to work my way through all of it. It was it was so immersive to read. And it also surprised me at certain points, which, which I want to unpack with you. But as I was kind of reflecting on how do I want to start this conversation with Candice? Um, And naturally, the the easiest thing to do is to say, hey, let's just start at the beginning. But um, I stumbled across something. And I've been a follower of your podcast for for a while. And I I went back and listened to the first episode with Indeleka Mandela. And I have to say, first episode with a Mandela, and just to clarify for everybody else, uh, Indeleka Mandela is the granddaughter of Nelson Mandela. Um, I mean, that's one hell of an entrance, Candice. That is a great way to start anything.
0: (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thanks, Bobby. And I'm so happy you enjoy the podcast. Um, Yeah, I think I was very privileged to get into Mm Lepa for my first, first episode. And it's because her and I actually crossed paths at the Nelson Mandela Foundation, and we were having a joint book launch. So she had written her book, I'd written my book, and two or three other Mm high-profile South Africans had written their books. And I was just happy to be there, to be honest. I was like, oh, you guys want me here? Great. (laughs) (laughs) And so then I almost like we clicked immediately. As soon as we met, we were like, you know, we've known each other forever. And so when I asked her to be on my podcast, she was so gracious. And she was just like, yeah, anything for you, baby girl. And yeah, that's the podcast you listen to.
1: That conversation, though, Candice, it was interesting because as she unpacked the elements of her own story, I think there were so many parallels that I could draw to to yourself. And and it's interesting because I listened to Indaleka with a lot of the areas she touched on. I kind of also felt like she was, in a roundabout way, talking about you too. And I think some of your questions were kind of steering a, a commonality of experiences. Um, and some of those commonalities, I think for me, are that kind of stand out is, one of the first ones was around absenteeism. So, you know, with... With Indeleka not necessarily growing up around her father, I think there was a kind of shared experience there as well. Um, but am I right to assume that, you know, your your connection to Indeleka kind of takes on other parallels as well? I think there's a multitude of connections there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you spotted them so on point because, I mean, Indeleka and I have so many parallels. And I think I've shared parallels with so many South Africans, unfortunately. Um, and I think. And story is interesting in the fact that she had lost her father, but she also lost her grandfather. But she lost mm. her grandfather in two different ways. She lost him when, of course, he was imprisoned. And I'm speaking about, obviously, the late Nelson Mandela. And so he had been a father figure to her, and then he was imprisoned. And then once he came out, she lost him again in the sense that now he no longer belonged to her and her family. Mm. He belonged to the world. And so I think her reflection on that was also incredibly powerful. And um, I could draw the same parallel in the sense that my father did end up, you know, losing his life for the country. Um, and there is the sense of, you know, missingness. I think any person, any you know person out there who grows up without a parent or both parents, there will always be a part of your identity that you question, that you're like, Mm. I wonder what part of me this is, you know, especially when you don't see it in the parent that's living. And so, yeah, there were just a lot of parallels that we had within our stories.
1: And, and, you know, and I think especially as, you know, if you break down that dynamic of a relationship between daughter and her father, and Indeleka speaks about it so beautifully as well. You know, I have a young daughter, and when you you hear... um, when you hear it through that lens, it does strike this this emotional chord. You know, I think one of the things that Indalek had said was that you need that balance of, of mother and father. And, you know, your first role model was is inevitably your father. And even with your father's passing, I think there is such a strong legacy in you know, he may not necessarily have been there to do some of the regular things a father does with a daughter. But I think there was so much more empowerment in the things that he tried to do that I think is something that's then instilled in you that you're driving forward.
0: I think so. I, I, I've i had to look at my life from a very different perspective to when I was younger. Um, hmm. When I was younger, there was a sense of anger that I experienced. There was a sense of almost distancing myself from my father. And the reason for that was I couldn't understand why he had chosen this grander purpose over his family. And so for me, it was—it came down to the fact that, oh, was I not worthy of being chosen? You know, um, What was it about this cause that stole him away from me in some way? Mm. And I think as I grew older, I started having a very different relationship with my father. I started looking at it from the lens of, Firstly, he was a black man in South Africa, and we know South Africa's history, right? The apartheid was brutal. Uh-huh. And I discovered a photo book of his and a photo album. And he would stick these like quotations in this book. And it was just so incredible to look at it and think, okay, my father was maybe 18. He was this was like in 19, you know, 80-something. And he was sticking in quotes such as, you know, your skin is not a crime. Um, whatever you think in your mind you can achieve, you know, you are more powerful than measure, all these things, all these affirmations. And I think that's when I really got to know him. And then Hmm. that's when I became almost accepted this version of myself where I've always been someone who loves people. I've always loved, you know, the greater good. I love justice. I love fairness. Um, And I feel like those are all the things my father stood for. And it's only now that I can really say in the past few years that I've really, you know, Stepped into that, well, in the best way. I hope you know would make him proud. Yeah,
1: and I think that's another area of kind of comparison, isn't it, to to Indaleko because her grandfather um, chose the nation and then the world, but from where he stood, it's not like he really had a choice. I think as he'd started down that path and that path then evolved, it was where do I kind of where do I fork off on this road to mm-hmm. choice do I make a decision to do the right thing for the betterment of, of humanity or is my focus my family and this is a pattern I think you see with a lot of great leaders you know Nelson Mandela Mahatma Gandhi there are, there are so many to name where the family I don't know if the word is conflict but I think it's the fact that focus on either the family or the nation or the world you can't do all of it at the same time. And I think you know, and, and we don't have a time machine, um, Candice, but you know, if we think about your father's motivations, you know, for as you said yourself, seeing what was happening to the nation around him, to his family, to his friends, um, I don't think many of us are brave enough to take those steps. Yeah. And no, no, no.
0: I, I I'm just listening to what you're saying and I it just struck a chord because I think it is so true. I think, you know, we, or should we have had a time machine? Um, I think whenever you are in a position whereby you see so much injustice, right? We like, hmm. but I think in South Africa, like it's such a, it's one of those countries where it, it was very different in the way it was operating, right? Like it was, the minority had a majority, you know, were suppressing the majority in our country. Um, and I look at it and I see it from my father's perspective of, I mean, my father was only 25 when he passed away. Hmm. Um, and the fact that he could internalize that and say, well, I've got two kids and I don't want them hmm. living like this. I just think is a fascinating frame of mind um, and something I deeply admire, actually.
1: It's quite a difficult leap to make, isn't it? And I think, you know, I have two children. And it, honestly, if if somebody was to... If I was to make a conscious call to, to go down that path, I don't think it's a call that I could make. I don't think I have that inside me to make that call. But at the same time, we're not necessarily seeing the, the construct of apartheid. Or you know, We are seeing discrimination in various forms, and that is slowly starting to dismantle. But when we look at the construct of apartheid, that is an extremity beyond many extremities. You know, and I think it's interesting what you say around, you know, the call is, am I doing this for the betterment of my children and their futures? And in a sense he was.
0: Absolutely, And I think it is important to draw the parallels and say, mm. you know, this is not a normal situation. We're not speaking about, you know, discrimination that we are seeing like in the U S and around the world. We speak about a very, you know, specific and a very um, Almost warlike, I would say, you mm-hmm. know, situation and system. And so I think the difference, the biggest difference, is that with apartheid, if we look at it as a war, which I believe it was, um, then it becomes something completely different. It's not so much about choice, right? Am I going to choose to do this? As for you know, the idea of like, if I don't choose, what are the consequences? Whereas I think in today's reality, I mean, we're not faced with those kind of decisions that we need to make. And therefore, it's really difficult for any of us, including myself, to really step into those shoes and say, would I have made this decision? Would I have stepped into this path? And I think none of us really know until we're faced with that kind of extremity.
2: Mm.
1: Well, you know, absolutely. And I think it's, it as you said, it's it's not a normal form of discrimination. It's a systematic um, well architected method of not just persecution but of control mm-hmm. you know i think the when we when we kind of explore um the kind of facets of of how apartheid was constructed it's there are so many other parallels that it kind of draws also and i think i, I know you've done some work also in australia with with some of the indigenous people there and you know one of the things i read a while ago was When the construct of apartheid was put together, many of those people that were crafting it had also gone out to Australia to understand how those frameworks in Australia had actually controlled the native people of of Australia. Um, But tell me a little bit more about your work in in, in Australia and and, and if any parallels you can draw to what you saw in South Africa.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly interesting. I actually haven't come across that experience. So thank you for mentioning it. Um, Yeah, you know, I think what you realize, because I work with post-conflict societies, um, and Australia is one of those. Hmm. And the one thing you realize around discrimination of any kind is first and foremost the almost systematic dehumanization of people and then the invalidation of experience. And I think those are the two things that I see both in Australia and in South Africa. Um, the one that you know I look at before I step into any context or into any country is the idea of where did the dehumanization stem from? What does that look like and how is that manifesting in today's reality? Um, And that is usually the most interesting part because it is usually not written accurately in history. And so I used to think this was a South African problem whereby we don't narrate our history correctly and accurately. And then I realized that it feeds into the second thing, which is, the invalidation of experience. If there's no history to support your experience, did it really happen, right? Mm -hmm. And so those are the two parallels I've been finding that I run into, which is in Australia, I mean, they've got such a brilliant marketing campaign, almost as a country, as a collective, of really not recognizing the Torres Strait Islanders, their Aboriginal communities, any of the indigenous tribes really, Mm -hmm. and making them seem as though they're crazy. They're crazy for wanting Mm -hmm. more rights. They're crazy for wanting land back. They're crazy for you know, wanting these institutions to be memorialized for them. Um, And the one thing that really struck me was the lost generation. So it was this time in Australian history whereby people were separated based on uh, skin color, but it was like, okay, well, you fairer skin, so you come on this side, and they would just separate from their families. And how these people actually find each other, like now, you know, Mm -hmm. the Facebook era, and like they all kind Mm -hmm. of find each other. And how Australia refuses to recognize the lost generation, which is that's what Mm. they're called, right? Um, And then the parallels to South Africa is the idea of it's more the downplaying of pain. It's like, oh, but apartheid wasn't that bad. It was just that white people lived here and black people lived there, you know? Um, And that I find very interesting because I'm like, but if you look at the death souls and you look at the redistribution of income and, you know, the psychological Mm. impact of these things, um, these are really severe wounding. This is like severe wounding. You can't control a majority of people without breaking down the psyche and mm-hmm. order to break down the human psyche. You know, there's a lot of things that need to happen. You know, dehumanization, you know, black people having to carry this card and um, that was called the pass. Um, and if you were in a restricted area, which were usually white areas after a certain time, the police could like brutalize you. You could be imprisoned. You could be beaten, everything. Um, and of course, you know, there were black benches and white benches. You weren't allowed to walk on this side. And white people were allowed to do everything that you couldn't do, mm-hmm. you know, so they could sit on the black bench and not have any repercussion, mm-hmm. But if you sat on the white bench, you would immediately face, you know, severe punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... In most post-conflict countries, uh, this is the thing you will find if there has been an oppression of some kind, and it's really interesting. It's really interesting to work in these climates.
1: Well, and you know that you talk effectively. You talk about that transitional period, you know, because you have those lost that lost generation in Australia. And one of the things that's always intrigued me about South Africa is, are you know, is the nation as in your generation? in that lost period right now because you know you you were born at the point where um, apartheid started to be dismantled and you know the the election in 1904 i think you were probably around three or four around then yeah. so you're very young and so your formative years were effectively spent during that transitional period now many people in the west we have this view that okay so apartheid's been dismantled they've turned the switch off and the country is now in that state of transition in forgiveness and equality. But one of the things that I've never really been able to understand is surely you can't go from such inequality based on such systematic controls into a period even over a few decades of equality. Because, you know, one of the things if, you, if, I, if I think about school as an example, um, I remember, you know, for me, world history was very narrow narrow. In regards to people that were not white, and you know, I grew up in the UK. We didn't have the systematic controls that that you'd had in South Africa, and any kind of clawback to slavery was was things that were dismantled like centuries ago or many decades ago, mm-hmm. effectively. But there was still colonialism, and even with colonialism, you know, I think the last big colony was was India, which was left in in in, in the fifties or the forties. Um, but even at school for us, Candice. Um, world history was still very narrow you know what we were taught about people of color was india was a british colony black people were slaves and they would throw in a little bit of martin luther king here and there just to kind of throw it to to balance it out but that was what we experienced on on world history and that's coming from a nation that didn't have that systematic control as you had in south africa but you know for, for you growing up and spending your formative years and let's explore education as an example how balanced was that what was the syllabus like
0: Oof. um i love that you actually bringing up the idea of education because i think for me that is my biggest um goal at this time mm. and i'm not sure when i'll be able to really succeed at doing this but I find that in South Africa, even though now we are ruled by a black government, one could say, or at least we have come into a phase whereby, you know, there is much more equality than there was. Um, and I am completely speaking from a place of privilege because I was very mm. fortunate to, as you said, you know, I wasn't born under the apartheid like um, era within that educational era, at least. Um, and so I got to be exposed to good schools, and I got you know the privilege of you know learning how to speak and articulate and enunciate my words you know um and so I still speak from a place of complete privilege in this regard. Uh-huh. but the one thing I also found incredibly fascinating was and this is also what threw me into confusion was our historical education was so terrible that I remember like when I was in primary school um I was around the age of nine, ten, and our history included pretty much that Nelson Mandela and F. W. de Klerk were, you know, they were the saviors. Really, they came together, they sat around a dinner table, and like all were sorted, and the country went back to normal. That was really my understanding at that young age. And I thought, oh man, what a what a great guy this F. W. de Klerk is, because I mean, he had all this privilege, and he decided, you know what, I'm going to sit with these people, and I'm going to hand over power. Um, and as I grew older, I started doing my own historical education because, I mean, the one thing about South African history that I do appreciate is that we are very worldly. So we do learn about
2: mm. you
0: know, America, the UK, Australia. We learn about pretty much every place around the world. However, where we lack is our own history. So we learn so little about our own history that it creates confusion amongst mm. the people learning it and the people within the country. And so I remember it was around 16 where I had my first real experience where I was like, no, but this makes no sense. And it was also me. It was at the same time that I was researching my father's death and trying to figure that out. And um, when I realized that, wow, this was not just like a black people over here, white people over there system. This was a war. This was brutal. This was hmm. logical. Um, and I had a, disagreement with my history teacher as to how he was teaching us the syllabus, because I was like, this doesn't make any sense, you know? And the reason people can keep saying, you know, apartheid is over, get over it is because people don't actually even understand what it is. And Mm. um, it's almost sad for me to realize that I'll speak to my younger brother's friends who are maybe, you know, 1920. And, and they, when we speak about apartheid, they've got such little knowledge that it's shocking to me because I'm like, but you're black, <laughs> you know? Like we're all black. Like how don't we understand this? But I guess um, um,
1: a lot of knowledge that you did get in school was through a white lens, through textbooks that were constructed in by people who were white, but also in a means to control people of color.
0: Oh, so correct. It's correct, hmm. and I think a part of me where I, I personally experienced the, you know, almost like I want to say anger, but um, Is the fact that our government is black, it's like it's a black government, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And for me, the fact that our own government is not reforming these textbooks. I mean, I get it, we are a very young democracy, very, very Mm -hmm. young. But I feel as though we are almost, we are heading into almost 27 years now. And within these 27 years, they haven't been able to incorporate our history. Mm -hmm. Um, And the problem with history and the problem with memory is that the further removed you are from the incident, the more diluted it becomes. And so yeah. if we don't start teaching this history, we, firstly, we have a generation already, and you referred to it very correctly by saying the lost generation, because I feel like that's what mm-hmm. we are. Um, mm-hmm. We've got this generation of people whereby they don't actually understand. They don't understand the past. They don't understand the economic inequality, but also the psychological inequality. you know. And so the kind of debate you'll find yourself having as a person of color, would be like, oh my, like if you're having it with someone, you know, a white person or, and where they're coming from a genuinely confused place, they'll say like, well my parents worked hard so they bring it down to the fact that if your parents had worked hard, you wouldn't be in the same economic hardship, but the difference is, and what they don't understand is, Mm -hmm. yes, your work, your hard work and your parents' hard work could be rewarded under the system in a way that my parents couldn't and so whether my mom or dad, like worked themselves to the bone. The rewards they got couldn't even compare. They didn't even have the same opportunities that you had, Mm. you know. Um, And I find the hardest part is almost that even black students aren't understanding this. So they find themselves falling into this motion and this understanding that, oh, it's just that my parents were lazy or my parents didn't work hard enough. When we all know the truth is the system wasn't designed for them to win. The system was completely designed for them to fail. And so, yeah, history is so, so pivotal in our experience, you know.
1: Well, there's a couple of things that come off the back of that is um, history is kind of written through commentary, through through a narrative, as in it's documented, you have newspaper archives, um, you know, newsletters, things, things are written and captured at a time. But I guess during that apartheid era, there was, there was, you know, everything was captured through a white lens. Um, you know, people of colour were not able unless there was, you know, things documented and written down, diaries created that people have then written books about. And if I use your book as an example, it's not a story that somebody had been able to capture at the time and then been able to distribute. I'm going to assume that the distribution of black intellectual property rights or thoughts were things that were controlled. When you look at what students have access to, you know, libraries would be full of newspaper archives that are controlled by a white government or through a white lens and the same thing with textbooks so how does that lost generation candace then start to catch up on history that just hasn't even been documented
0: yeah that's actually such a brilliant point bobby i think you know for me the one thing that's important to remember is as most south africans we have access to these archives within the individuals mm. that have lived them right um we aren't that far removed from what was to not have access to this information. And I think that's where I'm almost, you know, trying my best to make sure that these people who are still living have lived in both realities. They've lived both in the struggle and in the time in which this was occurring. But now they're living in this reality where, you know, we are trying to move forward and we are trying to at least equalize some sort of economic justice here. Um, and I think that now we have that opportunity. Now we have that ability to really tell our stories and make sure that they are documented within the context that, you know, they would be the most beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, what is very tricky about the South African context is, you know, we don't have probably the, the cleanest government in the world, you know, in terms of corruption and that kind of thing. Um, and so it almost seems as though, or it can be perceived to be, that people are kept in the dark for a reason. There's a reason this history is not being transferred. There's a reason this knowledge is not being openly shared, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think the biggest problem that at least I witness, and this is a completely personal opinion, is we have these radical leaders that step up, right? Like for us, we've got, you know, your Steve Hoffmeyers, who's like, he runs this community called the Rania, which is an all white mm-hmm. community. And they feel like they should be independent within South Africa. And then you've got Julius Malema who runs the EFF, the economic freedom fund. And he's a completely different radical who spews information that isn't even correct, you know, uh, which isn't surprising the Trump era. You know, anyone can say. I, I was
1: going to say, is it just the, yeah, the South African Donald Trump. That's gonna-
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, And when people take the information from those sources, they get skewed in these realities that don't actually exist, Mm. and then the truth just gets diluted within all the messiness. So, yeah, until we start really capturing the stories before this generation before us passes on, I think we're going to be in trouble.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting when, you know, one of of the other areas to just kind of claw back on is you know, we spoke about the influence that this had on, on people of color, that the system and the regime had on people of color. But, you know, as apartheid was, was being dismantled, you know, it's dismantling the legal framework, removing those institutions, but you can't necessarily remove how people have been institutionalized with apartheid. And this time, not necessarily looking at it from the lens of someone who is of color, but somebody who is of Who's white? Because for many generations, they grew up thinking a certain way because the regime pushed them down that thought process. So, as much as there were a handful or maybe more good Samaritans in that space, there's still going to be a group of people that have been indoctrinated with that belief system. That doesn't go away overnight.
0: Mm-mm, it doesn't. And I think it, that is the most important thing to realize, right? Um, People, it's very easy when you're sitting from a moral standpoint and Mm. you're looking down on the others, I will say, and saying, well, you should feel like this. You should behave like this. You should be doing this. Um, But it's very difficult when your whole mental system and your whole experience of living um, has been very skewed to one direction and it has been very purposefully skewed in that sense. And so what you end up finding, especially in South Africa, for example, is there aren't a lot of, um, like, two-parent households, especially in black communities. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, um, absenteeism or, like, fathers just disappearing or abuse. You know, we've got one of the highest gender-based violence statistics in the world. Um, And, yes, when you look at it, like without the reference of the past, you can look like we're just barbaric people living amongst each other and we just don't have any self-control. However, when you really zoom in and you realize that so many of these men and women were firstly separated, which was one of the big ones, um, hmm. apartheid, but then they were also incredibly dehumanized, right? Like the men weren't treated as men. And therefore when they came home, their only expression was that, you know, within the household, um, And then you look at it from a different perspective and you look at the people, and I'm not justifying it at all. I'm just saying, you know, if we look at the fact, you look at people like Eugene Dukak, who's the man who killed my father, and you look at how he was raised within his household. His father was incredibly militant. His father was, you know, incredibly racist. And he worked, you know, within the government systems and structures, you know, as Mm. one of the people who implemented this regime and who were, you know, really in it. And so you raise a child from, you know, the age of, let's say, consciousness, which is three, four, five, and all you're telling them is like, these are the others and they are terrible and da-da-da, you know, and they're trying to steal the country and they're gonna hurt you and they A child cannot consciously decipher that. This isn't morally right. And mm. you take that same child that's been bred in this ecosystem of hate and indoctrination, and you put them into a police academy at the age of sixteen, where they get again. You know, indoctrinated into the system. And then you take that very same child and you expect them to be loving and kind and gracious, you know, and you implement them into society. Of course, that's not going to be the result, right? The result is going to be this is right, this is wrong, and this is how I'm going to live my life. And so I look at it from both sides. You know, we have a country Mm. of incredibly damaged people through systems of Mm. indoctrination that are still almost plaguing us today.
1: And that takes generations to to overcome. And you can use the the U.S. as an example, you know, where a lot of those battles are still being played out on a daily basis. You know, they're they're starting to make news in the airwaves again. Um, But it's an important, I think it's an important conversation topic, though, Candice, is to actually just realize the struggle from both sides. But how much do you think the government now are doing to address, I think, that healing between both sides?
0: Oof, it, that's a difficult one because I think there is only so much that can be done, right? Like there's mm. certain things that have to be done and then there's certain things that can be done. Um, I look at the South African context and I, and I realize that you know when we transitioned, I feel as though those in power and leadership did the best they could with what they were given at a time um, in order to avoid a civil war right? Because that's where we were headed. Mm. I mean, South Africa, the reason the the world knows of South Africa, and we're one of the countries that, you know, whenever the conversation of peace comes up, we're one of the nations. It's simply because what we did seemed as though it was an impossible feat. Like, who on earth is going to have a seamless and smooth transition, right? Um, And Mm -hmm. we managed to do that. And I think the promises that were made at the time were the right ones. I feel as though economic redress was supposed to be done, land reform was supposed to be done. Um, and all of these things, when we put them into the academic context, make a lot of sense. You know, it's like, obviously this makes sense, Bobby, this is like the only way to do it. And it's going to be fair and it's going to be tough. Mm. But the truth is, in like in practice, that is not as easy as it seems, right? How do you take, land from those that have and you start redistributing that to those who don't, then mm. how do you actually balance out those scales in a way that doesn't cause turmoil, right? Um, and so we find ourselves in a very tricky position right now because we went into this euphoria, which we call it the Nelson Mandela euphoria time where South Africa was thriving. Everyone was at like peak, you know, we were getting our first black blackness South Africa and all these incredible things were happening But then reality started to hit, you know, after a certain point and we're like, okay, wait, 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 something isn't making sense. And I look at it now and I think, you know, that's where we are. We're still on a very rocky ship. We're on a very rocky boat. Mm. And I think there are multiple reasons for that. Um, I feel as though South Africans are very wounded and deeply hurt nation of people and, how that's manifesting is in this lost generation, I'd call it after 1994, well, at least after 92. And um, what's happening is there's that taking of the past and saying, well, that was unfair. You know, like that makes no sense. Like I, why should I suffer? And because we didn't get economic rights um, mm. and it's turning into anger and it's turning into misdirected anger. And so now we find ourselves in a very difficult place. But on the plus side, what I look at is if you look at our country in the context of an adult growing into maturity, we've barely reached maturity. You know, we're going mm. up like 27 years, like at 27, like, what do you know? Right? Like I say this, like I wasn't 27 a few years ago, but, <laughs> but even then I look at it and I'm like, I didn't know as much as I thought I did. You know, I was still going through growing pains. I hadn't figured out my life, And I look at, my country now and I look at South Africa and I'm like, it's only 27 years old. You know, it's not mm. really know what to do, you know, and as much as we want to heal and implement these structures, even on a government level, there's still so much to be done and still such a long path to walk.
1: It's interesting. I think if you, you look at the, you look at it through the lens of how youthful the the country is and you know and it's funny you kind of you know internalize it like that i mean if i think about myself I'm, I'm 40 and you know if there was a country that was 40 years old based on me it would be a mess <laughs> and <laughs> but you know that maturity takes centuries to to establish but even without those wounds that need to be healed and i think you know one of the things that i kind of um you know kind of pull back on from from what you, you referenced is it's very easy uh, from the sidelines to question leadership um, when you're not in the toil of the emotion. you know you're not trying to balance all of the different variables. You don't see everything, you know we don't, we don't have a view of, of everything that's going on at that time, but also is the fact that you know the the breakdown of apartheid did two things to people, where we have, I think the two attributes that we are the most defensive about is our ethic or ethical or moral standing and wealth so once you start to interfere with both of those that's going to be explosive
0: oh yeah oh yeah Mm. And I mean, I think you see it in today's world too, right? Like we Mm. work with the US, we see it with governments across the world, we see it with people because it's not, Mm -hmm. it doesn't just manifest, you know, in terms of countries and in these macro scales, it manifests on micro scales, right? Mm. Even on -on one-on-one relationship scales, uh, no one wants to be questioned on whether that's their economic capacity or their moral standing right and if you want to call the fight whether that's in a relationship or in on a macro government or country level those are the two things that you would attack first so Mm.
1: um, absolutely so Candice, let's um let's change direction and um i'm really curious about how you grew up um so you grew up in in Mafeking, and I know you moved between your mother and and your grandmother in those in those earlier years. Um, but tell me a little bit more about the time that you spent with your grandmother in the, in the farm there.
0: Yeah, so I actually grew up with my great grandmother, um, and it was actually great. You know, I I believe it was a great life to live. It was, not mm. hindsight, of course, I can look at it and be like, what the. <laughs> <laughs> but no um, I I actually had a great childhood I think um, and it wasn't a childhood filled with much you know it hmm. is a very rural community and when I say like sometimes I want to say farm but I'm like it's not of because when you think farm you're thinking cute little farm animals and that wasn't the you
1: do with the white picket fence <laughs> and rolling hills that's the no, view that we have
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, just a lot of sand, tons of sand um, and mm. little hut-like things. Uh, I mean, we had chickens. That's about as far as the farm life went. But, yeah, I lived in this clay, almost house um, with my great-grandmother. And the house was like tiny. It had a division of maybe two rooms, really. Mm. Um, and like a very strange little bedroom kind of situation. But it was just really division. These weren't like actual rooms. Um, and I remember just feeling as though, like, you know, as all children do, like there was nothing missing. I didn't question anything. I was just happy to be, you know, playing with my friends, playing in the sand. Um, And we had one TV, like one television system. And that was like our only source of like, you know, entertainment. Um, And, yeah, I think that was a really interesting way to start my life. I'm actually really grateful that that's where I started (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: and it's um your mom and dad met in johannesburg didn't they and and how much do you know about when they first met
0: yeah i mean it's a very interesting story so my mom was incredibly naive at the time she was in high school and Mm -hmm. a friend of hers and her had decided they were going to go into the main city and so Mm -hmm. they were just walking in the city and my dad apparently just came from behind and he like tugged at her chain from behind, and obviously she like curled her neck, like no, you know. And they turned around, and like they just started speaking. And he said, you know, can I walk you the rest of the way? And yeah. she just said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, okay, where do you stay? And then she like naively just told this random man that she just met, um, oh no, I stay at exactly this location. Um, and he was like, okay, cool, I'll come and see you sometime. <laughs> And yeah, I think she actually didn't <laughs> fall into the relationship, to be honest. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, well, what are your what are your mother's fondest memories of your father in those early days when they first met?
0: Yeah, I think the one thing that I can probably say is just his energy for life. Like my dad, mm. was like someone who had a lot of energy to just be alive. Mm-hmm. He loved music. He loved dancing, um, and I think those were the characteristics of his that she probably fell for the most. Um, and he was. I think this is where, like, you know, I get probably my personality from is, you know, he was someone who was incredibly, um, almost obsessive to a point, you know, he's very, mm-hmm. he was very much once he decides on a route or path or a thing, it was just, that was what he was going to do. He didn't really mm-hmm. or engage failure um and so what that led to was he lived all extremes pretty like you know he was extremely happy and he was extremely out there so when he was having a good time he wanted to have an incredibly good time
2: Mm -hmm. and he
0: wasn't unfortunately he just wasn't so he lived a life of extremes yeah
1: it was kind of manic behavior very Um,
0: much so yeah
1: and, and actually you know you can tell a lot i think about his personality from like how he approached your your mom i think that confidence yeah. pretty awesome
0: <laughs> I mean I don't know if it would have worked with me but I mean good for him <laughs>
1: <laughs> there was a charm there was a charm somewhere <laughs> Um, I want to break down some of the areas in your book Um, you know I think something that stood out to me from that was you made a comment around the legitimacy of, of your story and we've kind of spoken about this already as well where you know you'd mentioned that The kind of doctrine was there to invalidate experiences and you know a lot of your book does speak about um the fact that you needed to legitimize your story that everybody's story has has legitimacy and i think when we start to open it up i think it's our vulnerability that we we don't necessarily want to expose um but for yourself what were your what were the biggest challenges for you were putting pen to paper in in writing the book and, and how was it perceived, even with, I don't know, your, your closer circle?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there were so many different challenges that I faced. Um, mm. The one thing about writing a book, it's really a soul search, it's a deep dive into yourself, really, you know. Mm. Um, and I think for most of us, 2020 would probably be the closest thing that I could um, relate to writing a book in the sense that. So many of us were so busy running from ourselves from our lives, and we was in a constant flow of stuff we were doing stuff, you know, um, and all of a sudden we pulled yeah. about and we just had to sit and we both mm. of us like some of us liked what we saw when we were with ourselves, and some of us didn't um and I think that's exactly what the process of writing the book was for me it was a moment of stopping to run and just sitting with myself and saying, Mm -hmm. okay, let me explore this part of my life that I haven't thought of, or I haven't really engaged with in a long time. Um, and I mean, I ran into like difficulties as with, you know, I'm sure most of us would. Um, when relating to versions of myself, right. Mm -hmm. Um, I looked at certain versions and I was like, whoa, you know, how could you have been that person? That is a terrible, you know, um, you were terrible or whatever the case was. Um, And then there were certain moments I had to have empathy and Mm self-compassion and say, you know, that was the reality you were dealing with. That was what you were facing. Um, But I genuinely, I know it's going to sound crazy, but I would highly recommend every person really write their life down or they choose a narrative to write their life down under. Because it is incredibly powerful to dig into these moments in your life and in yourself mm. that um, sometimes we bury so deeply we almost forget they exist, you know. So yeah, it was it was a very fascinating experience for me.
1: It's almost therapeutic, though, isn't it? Just just yeah. being able to do that. It's mm. in a sense it's journaling, but with the fact that it's going to get published and people are <laughs> going to read it. I think that adds <laughs> a different lens to it. Yeah. Um, but the you know, if I think about you know my, my story is just nowhere near as interesting as yours but if i was to think about journaling or writing my story one of the first things that kind of comes to mind is how do you represent those people around you that will have their own different version of events one thing i noticed though from how you'd written the book was it was still very personal to you but was that something that kind of flowed through your psyche and consciousness as you were writing the book
0: oh absolutely and um That was actually one of my big roadblocks, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think I struggled so much with actually just getting started simply from the idea that I was so concerned as to how everyone would be portrayed and how they'd feel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having that debate back and forth like that's not how it happened. It happened like this. And, you know, and also having to respect my own experience of what had happened. Mm -hmm. Saying yes, I understand it happened that way for you, but that wasn't how I experienced it. Um, And so how I got around that was actually through writing that at the beginning of the book and saying, you know, I'm fully aware that my version of events may not be able to be justified by everyone who lived this moment. However, this is my sequence of events and this is how I remember feeling, being, and going through life. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a big thing you have to accept when you're going into the journey of writing a memoir that consists of other people is it's not going to always be flattering because unfortunately our experiences of people aren't always the best. And I believe that of myself as of anyone else. If I were to feature in someone else's book, I'm pretty sure that there'd be parts of me that were very, you know, endearing and I'd love to read about. And then there'd be parts of me that maybe I just wouldn't like, you know, but it's the human experience. So, yeah, I think if anyone writes a book, that's one thing you have to make peace with that. You have to tell it from your version of events, and not like, and not really think about like, ah, what's this person going to think?
1: <laughs> and and I think it's also, like you say, it's kind of coming to terms with the bits that you may not necessarily want to reveal about yourself, because there's always things about us that we think, well, I'd rather people just not know that about me. And but then when you're writing the book and you're writing from that place of actually putting it all out there so people can then understand you i think it's important then to understand which bits of those things that are i'm not comfortable about myself that i know i've got to put in there i just have Absolutely.
0: to do it and i think for me the biggest thing i really wanted was authenticity um, mm-hmm. and i wanted people to at least leave you know as though like okay like or hater, like you know it is who she is um and that can be a hard thing you know like they said that things you're like ah <laughs> like that is awful i don't want people to know um but then you just put it in and you're like you know what i relate more to people when i know they're a human being and not like a robot mm. <laughs> you know, yeah.
1: you know uh, but that's absolutely true i mean it's you know there the were things that I, you know i even remember that kind of uh, kind of ingrained themselves in my mind was r&b music sundays <laughs> I mean, that is awesome
0: <laughs> I, mean, like, I mean is there anything better than like some marvin and i don't know
1: <laughs> and, and you know was it tony braxton i don't break my heart I, I remember when that came out and it's funny you had you these things in the book um those are the kind of things that people do latch on to and they stay in their mind so now anytime i hear that song yeah. And break my heart, that's exactly where it's gonna take me.
0: <laughs> I'm so happy. I'm so happy. No, I think there is like there is a lot of musical reference in the book because music is such a big part of my life, you know. And
2: mm.
0: it's also something that I mean, from even starting the book, like I would put on certain songs to get me in that emotion of, mm-hmm. you know, what was I feeling? What music was I listening to at this time? Um, in order to step into that person again so that I could write it from that, you know perspective almost and so yeah so when i put in that i was like yeah no definitely this this is 100 percent me still so one
1: <laughs> well, thing is music transcends us though and you know I, I think the way you worded it was actually it teleports us yeah. and you know I, and i think many people can relate to you know somebody puts a song on from an event or something they remember from 20 years ago it takes you back to that time yeah. the song does it's the way we it helps with the way our memory recalls <laughs> events 100%. it's a trigger 100% and even yeah.
0: like i think in a very day-to-day way you could have like you'd be driving you know not really thinking of anything and a particular song it will come on and for some reason the song is it, like triggers such a like either like joyful memory or terrible memory that you're just like yeah. not today <laughs> not today but <laughs> it
1: transports you i think that's the thing isn't it it has that quality yeah exactly. um which and I think it was so important to put that in the book. It feels very random, but, you know, it's become a discussion topic between us. And I'm sure it's the kind of thing that people will also relate to when the trigger off another conversation. Um, so those little snippets, I think those are the things that can make a huge difference and also lighten up what is quite a serious topic as well.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, and I think it's striking that balance of wanting someone to pick it up but not be depressed at the end of it and I actually feel like there's there's something transformative from reading the book and that's kind of how I felt from that.
0: Um thank you.
2: Thank you.
1: And just kind of exploring um that life quake event that led to you understanding more about your father's history and the which catalyzed effectively catalyzed this whole series of events to, you know, to you writing the book, to the humanitarian work you're doing, to us even having this conversation. Um, I want to unpack that lifequake of that medical emergency, that kind of I think was the pivotal moment that changed the trajectory of of who is Candice. I think that's fair to say.
0: Yeah. No, that is. accurate I think had it not been for that singular moment in my life and I'd probably be existing in a very different reality right now Mm. to be honest Uh, and sometimes you know with life we need those moments to jolt us back into you know our bodies and into our lives and say is this the person I want to be and is this the life I want to live you know Mm. and so for me it did happen at that 16 year old mark and that hospital, you know, visit that I had,
1: but that that was a real eye opener, wasn't it, to you understanding that you had to address those internalized feelings of the things that you were dealing with at that time, and you know, my interpretation of that, I think, was the moment when you'd open the book, which had that image of your father in it after he was after he was murdered, um, and to me, it always felt like it was that moment that you were hanging on to. Uh, which is something that you would never dealt with that you'd never really disclosed mm-hmm. to anybody um, was that moment when you kind of reached for the book opened that page and seen what i think is very much unthinkable for a young child to see that image you know it's quite harrowing to even picture that in in your own mind but was that really that point that catalyzed a lot of your negative emotions as you were growing up
0: yeah i mean that's on the money i think Mm. You know, at the age of nine, when you, I mean, at any age, really, I think I could have Mm. seen that image today and it would have still, you know, had quite a profound impact on me. But I think having that image almost itched in my brain at the age of nine um, and Mm. not having the context or support or understanding um, that was required in that moment, I think is probably the one thing that really started changing uh, the chemistry of how I started thinking moving through life um and it started implanting uh, like questions I started questioning a lot you know as to the i like idea of humanity you know and I think for me it almost instilled a lack of trust in people because I thought whoa like if my dad could be killed in this way and he could look like this um Then it means that human beings are capable of something like this, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it had never been a fact or a thought in my reality or mine until that moment. And I think it very much changed who I was, which was this like upbeat, bubbly child into a very, very depressed and serious child moving, you know, from that age onwards.
1: For any child, just seeing that image is harrowing, let alone it being an image of their father, and you not being able to discuss that with anybody, or even be able to get any context around what happened, why did this happen, Mm. what were the events that started afterwards, that must have been immensely confusing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, for those who haven't, you know, come across my story, basically what had happened was, um, my mom had bought this book, and it was called Into the Heart Mm. of Darkness by Jacques Poe. And on the cover of the book were a lot of men, but there was one in particular she pointed to, and she said, this is the man who killed your father. Um, And so I had that context to go with the book. So I did know that Mm -hmm. this wasn't going to be, you know, like a very upbeat book. Um, But I think it was my interest started to grow when I realized that, you know, every time we'd have guests, my mom would be like, go get the book, go get the book. And every single time she'd send me out of the room, I'd hear people's reactions, you know, these grown people Mm. either screaming or crying. And I'd start thinking, but why, why are these people reacting this way? And so I knew it was a picture of my dad in the book because I'd overheard that. And I decided to sit and hear what page people would have to turn to. And eventually I got all the information I needed. And when my mom left me at home alone one day, I reached for this book. And Mm. of course I shut the book and I threw it back in. But, Yeah, I think from that very moment, that image, it's it's still something actually, um, I'm 29 now, and it's still something that is pretty much in my memory, I think, of always well-being.
1: Are there moments, and I know we should never really reflect on regret, because you could end up, you know, you end up in this cycle that you can, can not get out of, but, you know, as you were growing up, were there moments where you just wished you hadn't opened that page?
0: You know, I don't know, Bobby, I think, I look at my life today. I look at the person I am mm. today and the work I do. And it's very difficult for me to change any point in my mm. life. It really is. Um, even going all the way back to my father, right? Like I could think about, oh, if my father hadn't gone, if my father was still alive, what would my life look like? You know? Uh, mm. And the truth is I genuinely look back and I realized that there was no ways I could have gone into this very moment as having this conversation had all these ser- sequence and series of events not occurred. Um, would it be something I'd now, looking at it from the perspective of if I were a mother and my child being exposed to something like that? Of course, that's a very different conversation and I would never mm. have anything like that for my child to be able to access. Um, mm. So, yeah, I, yeah I'd yeah, i never want it to be done to another. But in my life in particular, it's not something I'd change, no.
1: And I think it's, I think it takes time to get to that point of, actually realizing that it catalyzed that series of events that has now brought something positive. But I know for a long time for you, you know, in those formative years, it wasn't really, you wouldn't look at it as a, as a positive experience because you'd never really know how you're going to channel this Mm-mm. into something else. Yeah. Um, but I guess for a long time, that caused so much heartache and pain to yourself. I guess those feelings, you, you'd ne- not necessarily have been, been able to visualize where you'd be now mm. and, and also knowing that that story that that history is a core element in you know the work that you do
2: today
0: Oof. it's so true you know i think mm. there are moments like i don't think any one of us knows in any given moment right like you and i having this conversation it, you know we don't know who's going to listen to it right we don't know how far and wide it it go and reach and you know whose life it might touch or not touch Um, And I think it's very hard, whether it's within positive work or in negative moments, to really see what that individual moment is going to do for the rest of your life or Mm -hmm. how it's going to impact you. Um, And so to live through it is one of those things that you just have to have faith. You have to trust that there is some sort of rhyme or reason to the situation. Um, And so for me, I think, although I didn't, I could have never thought in a million years this would be what my life is. Um, I still had some sort of like semblance of knowing that there's something, there has to be something more to life, you know. Um, Hmm. And that was just sheer hope. I think that's what defines humanity. I think that's what defines our lived experiences is whether you're talking to someone, you know, in the middle of a war zone or in Syria or in Africa, wherever. Um, the one thing that keeps them alive is hope and as soon as the hope dies then there's no point of being alive right and so hmm. I think the only thing that really did keep me alive for a very long time was just that small little sum of hope that something anything would be different in the future so yeah
1: it is it's a glimmer of and I love the way you've I love the way you've kind of contextualized that you know and I think it's you're right there's that slim glimmer of hope that that light that then becomes a beacon to something and i think you know i think what's powerful about what you do now is you've kind of projected your father's name out to the world you know people know about what he was trying to do and a lot of that i think is an accredited to to what you've been doing with with your work as well and just putting that story out there i mean i didn't know until i'd written read the article on on the bbc news and that's then what catalyzed that chain of events to to bring us to having this conversation now um so yeah like you say when you look back you can't necessarily see where certain things are going to take you um one of the areas that i'm also keen on kind of exploring with you is you know as you as you grew up in those formative years um from the moment when you opened the book to a moment when you met eugene Ducock, who was the individual who effectively murdered your father and he was the the head of a paramilitary hit squad effectively uh, that worked for the for the regime and you know as I understand your story um it almost felt as though for quite a few years Eugene contributed to take to taking agency away from from yourself and you know when you talk about meeting Eugene and you and your family had, had visited the prison to, to see him. Um, tell me about what happened before that event, because there were things that you'd done, so you'd done some research, and then there was a government um, unit or department that was helping families to, uh, I think the a victim-perpetration dialogue. I think that that's correct. Um, tell me a little bit more about the kind of build-up to that meeting.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's important to understand that I mean, I was 24 when I met you
2: hmm.
0: and up until then I had never even entertained or engaged or even thought about, like it was such an out there idea that I didn't even like think that it would ever happen, you know, to me. I, hmm. Yeah. I couldn't even have, you know, potentially projected or visualized whatever, you know, um, that this encounter would occur. And so when I came home from gym one day, um, my mom called me and she's like, you know, do you, have, like, do you have time to talk? And I was like, yeah, what's wrong? And she said, no, I just got a call from the national prosecuting authorities and I want to know if we'd like to meet Eugene. And immediately my gut instinct answered before even I could. I immediately said yes but then i was like what <laughs> You
1: know, what? was it completely out of the blue was it a completely it was,
2: cold
0: completely out of the blue it was uh yeah. something i don't think any of us could have even anticipated and apparently this dialogue had been going on for years and they were just struggling mm-hmm. to find my family um and so they found my mom on that day and so Immediately I said yes. My mom was like, okay, I'll go with whoever wants to go. And, you know, I won't go if no one wants to go. And I was like, no, I'll definitely go. And my older brother was more hesitant, you know. And so we had in the build-up to it, we'd have these dinner table discussions where it was like, Hmm. I'm going, I'm not going, I'm going, I'm not going. And, And then eventually the day came and all of us just went. And it was my younger brother who's from my stepdad. It was my older brother. It was myself, my mom. My grandfather, and um, and so we headed to the prison to go and meet you, Yeah, did
1: did you all go, or were there members of your close family that made the call to say, "I'm not comfortable going"?
0: Oh no, like we or
1: was it a unanimous? Yeah,
0: no, we're such a tiny family. Like you know, literally mm. me going would have represented the whole family. Um, mm. <laughs> but no, 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 all of us, yeah, all of us within the family unit decided that
1: mm-hmm. we'll,
0: we'll hit there. Yeah.
1: So the um. The build-up to the day itself. So tell me about the morning. How was oh. the kind of preparation in the morning? And
0: yeah.
1: were, were you willing at any point just to say, like, I don't want to do this? <laughs> no, you know, it's
0: no. That was not even an option in my mind, Bobby. To be honest, um, and simply because I know the kind of person I am. I knew hmm. if I didn't do it, I was going to regret it for the rest of my life. That was not a question in my mind. Um, so I knew I was going to do it. That was hundred percent for sure. Um, however, the morning of, I think my family's got this, uh, strange way, I guess, of dealing with trauma and that Mm. is we just joke around. Like we just, we don't think about it. We just make jokes and we pretend as though it's not happening. (laughs) So that's pretty much, that was the morning. Like I didn't really think about it. We were joking around, you know, we just went on as though it was another day and we were just going to another place.
2: Hmm.
0: Um, and I can genuinely say it only hit me once we were there, once everything was starting to unfold, that, oh, wait a minute, we are meeting with the man who killed my father. You know, that it, it only really set in at that moment. But in the car ride over there in the morning of, like, I can't really tell you there was anything um, in particular that was really going on.
1: And you know what? And I think it's, it's beyond the man that, Killed your father. It's also the person that took agency away from your life.
0: Absolutely. yeah Absolutely. And so I think it, in the build up to it, maybe it is the brain's way of protecting you, you know? Mm. Um, and so it doesn't let you hyper focus on what's going to occur. But yeah, I didn't give it much power, to be honest. I didn't mm. give it much, you know, intentional thought. I just thought, you know what? We're going to go. And he might be sorry, he might not. I think that was the only reality I prepared for. That I could sit in front of this man, and he could say, "Well, I did what I did, and it's done." So, you know, so that was the only thing I really prepared for.
1: Yeah, and I think also at times like that, Candice, it's um, what do you lose by not going? You know, and I think it's when you flip that around and look at it from a different perspective, um, and and you know, you've I think you've gained so much from been able to experience that and i guess also being in the presence of of eugene um, ended up catalyzing a whole different series of events as well not just i, I assume not just in how you internally have dealt with forgiving him um, but also i guess how you relate back to those formative years where you know his influence was so negative
0: you're so right and i I think the whole encounter in and of itself was something I could have never anticipated. I, mm. I couldn't have seen what my life would become after that one central moment. Um, and I'm so grateful for it. You know, I'm grateful mm-hmm. that I knew I needed to go and I knew that something was go- like, I just knew that something needed to get regardless, you know, whether they were sorry or not. Sorry, you know, I knew it was going to be something that would close this chapter of my life and I could move forward. And uh, I could have never anticipated that this would have been where I am today. But definitely one of the moments in my life that will be marked as like one of the biggest moments, probably.
1: And, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of took away from um, hearing you speak before on, on your meeting with, with, with Eugene was that he looked and sounded as you'd expected him to and you know I I kind of found that unusual because a lot of the times you know when we study people from afar or we know about people or we've read things and we've seen pictures when you meet that person they don't look like the pictures they don't sound as this image that you had in your head but I actually found it quite bizarre that you related so closely to to a person you didn't know but had so much influence
0: yeah I mean that's so correct Bobby I think You know, I was just a shock, to be honest. You Uh, know, I was like, whoa, this person is exactly who I pictured them to be, you know. And I think one thing I had that some people may not have is I had so many images of him. I knew exactly hmm. what he looked like and I knew more or less what he sounded like. So um, when he sat there, there was nothing that really threw me. You know, he was the spitting image of everything I'd seen up to that point. Um, I think it's just very different to relate to someone through an image or like video footage versus seeing them, you know, face to face.
1: And you also speak about him being remorseful, not necessarily being narcissistic um, around what he'd done, because as he'd said himself was, I think you'd asked him, do you forgive yourself? Or was it your mother that asked him, do you forgive yourself? And and he'd said, you know, after you know what I've done, how can one forgive themselves after the things that, that I've done? Um and you reflect on um the fact that he didn't show arrogance in regards to him. And I think your mom your mother had spoken about the fact that this was a a soldier, someone that had been indoctrinated by the regime that was programmed yeah. to to do the things that he'd done. Yeah. You know. But where does a person go after the things that they've done? Is it that point where do they just for the sake of it sounding like the right thing to do and looking like the right thing, reach out to the victims of the families. Mm. But they can't necessarily find any remorse in the things that they've done because they're not programmed to, because they've been indoctrinated over time. Mm. But what was your sense of feeling from Eugene? Was it somebody that was remorseful or was it somebody that was just a robot, was a soldier that is just now at a point where he's trying to understand what he'd done? Yeah.
0: Uh, So you mentioned something that was actually the seminal point of the encounter, at least in my experience. And that was when I finally did speak and I Mm. asked Eugene, you know, if he forgave himself. Um, And he looked at me and he said, you know, every time a family comes here, that's one question I hope they never ask. Mm. Then he looked away and he dabbed the side of his eye because the tear had come down. And he looked back at me and he said, when you've done the things I've done, How do you forgive yourself? And in that moment, I broke down. I just started Hmm. to sob and sob. And I was shocked at the reaction coming from myself because I realized that I wasn't even crying for me. I wasn't crying for the person I had lost and what had occurred to me and my family. I was crying for the individual sitting in front of me too. Um, And so to me, it then brings me back to your question, which is, I understand the difficulties we go through as human beings to forgive ourselves. Right. I think that is one of the most difficult things any of us can do. Um, and mm-hmm. for me, that alone, his answer alone really brought me to a place. of this man has seen, and he is remorseful, but even more than being remorseful, it was just that he was a human being in pain, you know, and mm-hmm. I was a human being in pain and regardless of how much I wanted to hate him, you know, and, you know, say like, he's the worst person. Um, nothing could really make his pain worse or go away. And I can't think of anything more difficult to live with than that. So really like whether Eugene stayed in prison or left prison, to me, I was just like, his life will never be anything other than what it is right now. And, and so, yeah, when it comes to the whole indoctrination, you know, I've spoken about it earlier in the interview that plays a role, but I think for me, what you really realize, at least from my encounter, was this man went from being able to justify the fact of, you know, I did all these things due to my government and um, to going, getting to a place where it's like, whoa, I thought I was doing the right thing and all of a sudden, hmm. I'm just, am I just a monster? If, if hmm. everything I believe to be true is no longer true, what does that make me? Um, and I can't think of a more difficult question to ask oneself
1: no and i think you know when you there's a few words that kind of um kind of propel themselves out for me is that with all of the the entities involved in this yourself eugene a nation people of color people who are white there's there's trauma on every side of that fence there's there's a degree of forgiveness forgiving others forgiving oneself um and reconciliation and i think those three words Kind of propel out from from our entire conversation, you know your experiences, um, but you know if you look at the path that you're on now, based on this incredible story that you shared, you shared with us today, um, where is that path now taking you? Oh,
0: Bobby, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> uh, I
1: it might be an unfair question. No,
0: not at all. Not at all. Look, I think for me, I really want my life to be, you know, shown through the lens of choice. I really hope Mm. that when people listen to me, look at me, you know, whether they agree with what I've done or not, you know, that they can look at my life and how I choose to live it and be like, you know what, she's taking the choices and she's living her life according to her own rules. Um, And I think there's so many times we marry narratives about ourselves, like I am this Mm. and. You know, I've always been a lawyer, therefore that's all I can be. I've always been blah, 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 and therefore that's all that can happen. And the truth is, we all have choice. We can all change that story at any given moment. Um, And whether it's forgiveness, whether it's, you know, anything else in your life, um, I really hope that whatever it is that I choose to do next, whatever, you know, unfolds in my life, um, one thing people will always be able to say is that, you know what, like I may not like her. But, you know, I love the fact that she always, you know, walks the beat of her own drum. And if he can do it, so can I. So that's, yeah, that's one of the things that I really hope for moving forward.
1: I love that. Um, you, you know, you spoke earlier about coming from a place of place of privilege. Um, you know, when you when you look at some facets of your story, they may not ne- necessarily feel privileged to, to those in the Western world. But I, I love the fact how you've internalized that now. Within yourself, that you know you're in this position now, where you can instigate change. You can you can trigger change. You can assist those in various communities, you know, various different backgrounds, in in reconciliation, in forgiveness, in um, how to deal with trauma. Um, and I think you know what's compelling for me from your earlier statement is that it takes those who are from privilege that effectively have a responsibility. As, as well and I think that's what you you're now carving out for yourself
0: yeah I mean that's a great compliment Bobby and I think you know in life you, the word privilege I think <laughs> it's probably taken people you know people don't love it acknowledging their privilege right it's like no I don't want to you know don't tell me I'm privileged but the truth is all of us when we have the opportunity to instigate positive mm. change in the world I think it is up to us I think it's our responsibility to do so you know um, and and whether that for me was going to good schools, you know, being taught how to relate to people well, you know, dress well, whatever it may have been that puts me in this position to be able to be well received when I spread the message. Mm-hmm. All of those things are part of privilege, right? And I'm not the only South African who's experienced this amount of pain. I'm not the only one who's spoken about forgiveness before, but I do understand that. The reason my story's been so well received is due to a number of factors that were you know, given to me, bestowed upon me, blessed, whatever it may be, that weren't of my own doing. Um, mm-hmm. And therefore, I feel as though I take that and I say, okay, well, I've been put in this very fortunate position. And how do I then make sure that others whose voices may not be as loud as mine or as articulate or whatever it may be, are also heard and yeah, I think that applies to all of us, each and every one, mm. especially everyone listening to this amazing podcast.
1: Absolutely. I think as you put a different lens on the word privilege, because like you say, there, there are negative connotations to privilege and there are sometimes, you know, there are not because it's taking ownership and understanding what privilege you have and then understanding how you channel that, which I think is, is what you're doing. And I think image has a huge part to play in that because people relate to that. You know how you present yourself, how you go about channeling that has a huge influence um, on on the human construct. Um, Candice, I think we I think we need to tie up today's conversation. Um, <laughs> I've I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and you know those butterflies of nerves they disappeared after a while. So uh, <laughs> I, you know this this has been an incredible conversational experience and i am super keen on staying in touch and catching up sometime in the near future to see what what you're up to you know what kind of the future bestows Uh, and be cool to have you on the podcast again uh, at some point
0: yeah i know bobby i've loved this this has been fantastic for me so thank you and your interviewing is fantastic and this has just been such a brilliant just conversation and flow so thank you for having me
1: Wonderful. Thank you,
0: Candice. Thanks,
1: Bobby. And to my audience, thank you so much for listening. I will put links to any articles, news references, historic events, books, or anything that we've referenced in today's conversation. I will punch those into the show notes for for today's episode. I'll also put in links to Candice's socials so you can connect and follow her on the World Wide Web. Now, if you've enjoyed today's episode please remember to hit that subscribe button and rate and review the show with whichever merchant distributes this podcast to your device and feel free to recommend the show to your friends and colleagues and spread the love on social media now I encourage people to share this conversation and have this conversation with friends family and colleagues when we engage in emotionally informed conversations it breaks down barriers It helps people understand events that we may not necessarily be able to shine a light or see it through a lens that we fully understand. Conversation is one of the most impactful things that we can do. So I thank you for taking the time out and listening to this episode of the podcast and i hope that promise that i made to you at the beginning of the podcast that candice would have this gravitating force that you would just be unable to break yourself away from i hope that candice has had the same impact on you as she's had on me so this is me bobby signing out of a truly enlightening episode of
2: the bobby jagdev podcast